0: In this True Crime Law and Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. So, listeners, we I have to start with a, a little story, which is, so Matt and I have a little shared document where... We kind of keep notes of the things we want to talk about before we get into the episode. And it, and it texts us when, when the other person goes into the note to start editing it, or it pops up an alert on my phone. So I'm at my house <laughs> the other day, and the alert comes up that says, Matt is editing your shared note. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad that that popped up, because I realized there was something I wanted to put on the shared note that I had forgotten about. And so, Matt, do you want to share what happened at that point?
1: literally like i went into the shared note nothing was under like the little spot where i'm putting a recommendation i had for this week for something i was i think just finished watching and as i'm typing it literally as i'm typing it a little line appears right above it with n who just typed their recommendation Mm -hmm. clearly you're a faster typist than i am (laughs) (laughs) i was writing dirty john and n was writing dirty betty for
0: Dirty John, Betty Broderick. There's been a glitch in the Matrix, and Matt and I both were recommending the same thing.
1: I literally went out of the note and just texted and
0: shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the only thing I wanted to mention is I watched Dirty Betty over the last couple of days, which is the second season of Dirty John. Yeah, did you finish it? All the way I through. Did. Wow, okay. How was it? And what's Well, yeah. And what's really funny about it is I was watching it and I was like, this seems really familiar. Have I watched this before? And then I realized it's a case that we covered on the podcast. You covered it. (laughs) Yes, I covered it. And it took me like 20 minutes into the episode to realize I was like, oh, this is Betty Broderick. And we talked about uh, this show when when we did the episode. I know. I know. I love it. So how did you like the first season of Dirty John? Oh, we loved it. I loved it. It's good. It's got the uh, the woman from Friday Night Lights I as the love, main actress. I
1: love Connie Britton. I love her hair. I love her face. I love her voice. Love everything about her. Have you ever heard the podcast Dirty John yet? No, I don't think I have. Oh, you have to go listen to the podcast. I feel like the podcast inspired the show, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's probably true. Yeah, and it's... Really great, and the one thing I would say that I think they try to do it in the show, but that they do really well in the podcast,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is it's really important for the listener to understand. <laughs> like, yes, this sounds like an insane thing. Mm-hmm. It seems crazy what Connie Britton's character is doing. Like, how could she possibly <laughs> be doing what she's doing? Yes, with everything she's seen and all the evidence she has. But when you hear it in the podcast, they really lay out her history what she mm. where she came from and how her mind
0: works and it makes a lot yeah. of sense you know yeah 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 so what other things have you got i see you have a, a bevy of recommendations and things to talk about
1: i do i won't spend too long on any of them but okay. uh dirty john like i just said we watched the first season all the way through and speaking of things i've watched all the way through i've now finished season two of the center as well uh and i'm just like blown away i started season three the first episode yeah it's really good and did you watch the Hustler and the Housewife, the Erica and Tom
0: documentary? I haven't. Uh, I, I, I know I said I would mm-hmm. by this weekend, mm-hmm. but I hadn't gotten any texts from any of my Bravo friends mm-hmm. who were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Okay. Like, when they told me that Danielle Staub and $25,000 Dana mm-hmm. were the, like, specialists to talk about Erica mm-hmm. when they weren't ever even in the same city Ye- or well, on the same season. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, okay, I'll reserve my full opinion of it until you watch it so we can discuss.
0: Okay, I would but say I should watch it.
1: Definitely watch it. It's way more about Tom than it is about Erica. Don't tell me it's about Tom. It's about Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really wild. I, it gives a lot more context, for me at least, into what he actually Did. is accused of and has done. Okay. And, uh, wow. And it talks a lot to the survivors. So.
0: Oh, all right, yeah. cool.
1: Yeah, it's much more true crimey and less housewife sensationally. Okay. Which is good cool. and bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I also watched a documentary the other day called Baby God from okay. 2020. Have you ever heard of it? No. I hadn't either, but I just came across it. It's on HBO Max, and it's the story of Dr. Quincy Fortier, who was famous for having a fertility clinic i guess a fertility clinic fertility he was a specialist yeah. or whatever uh-huh. um back when like sperm banks were weren't even really a thing okay and he is famous for having used his own sperm to impregnate a staggering amount of women without telling them wow more. yeah it is pretty wild i highly recommend it baby god okay and the last thing i actually just finished this before we started recording was i watched the case against eight on hbo but on a little documentary spree Mm -hmm. And that is just the story of the, like, pathway to getting rid of Proposition 8. Oh, okay. And it talks about, like, the two couples that were basically, like, the figureheads of it. And, yeah, yeah, I thought it was really moving and and important and inspirational. And, you know, it's Pride Month. Happy Pride. So, yeah, I highly recommend it.
0: Nice. Cool.
1: What else? That's all my recommendations, I believe. Okay, Um, I did want to share a listener email we got not a little while ago that we haven't talked about yet. Okay, and I'm going to share a little bit of what they said in it. The subject of the email had something to do with coffee because we had an episode (laughs) where I mentioned Cassie Cielo, which was my like, one of my top three favorite blends at Starbucks when I worked there oh uh uh-huh and I guess this resonated with them because they had said in the email that they've been wanting to reach out for a long time and that they finally got the inspiration when I mentioned (laughs) the Casi (laughs) Cielo. and they said in the email that they used to work at a Starbucks uh Barnes and Noble Cafe technically serving Starbucks but I know that I know that distinction because I remember the days of trying to use my discount at a Barnes and Noble Mm. and the the side eye uh but they wrote that whenever they would get Kasi Cielo, they would buy it all up and hoard it in the freezer like a monster which <laughs> many of my coworkers did as well <laughs> and they wanted to just say their primary point of reaching out was to let us know that ripped from the headlines is the only podcast that they and their partner both like Aww. and so thank you for giving us at least one thing to agree on out every week Oh, that's awesome! I know, I loved that. So I just wanted to say thank you so much. I thank you for listening, and I'm glad that we produced something that both you and your partner enjoy.
0: I know how hard that can be. <laughs> uh, um, is that coffee blend no longer made or something? No, they make it every year. It's a annually. I think it's a, you oh, know, oh oh look out awesome. for it. Whenever your store, your Starbucks, local Starbucks has Costa Cielo, trust me. So I only drink espresso because I make lattes. Could mm-hmm. I use the beans for espresso? You probably can. Um, They're okay. a like medium dark roast,
1: if I remember correctly. And, and espresso is a dark roast. And really, <laughs> the dark roasts are really what you should be using for espresso. But many people prefer to use medium roast. What am I doing? What voice is this? I was just going to ask that. <laughs> it sounded fancy in my mind. <laughs> it sounded like
0: mm, finger in the air uh awesome well <laughs> let's let's just get started then. <laughs> i'm ready are you ready
1: I'm ready. Oh, it's my turn to do the episode. Oh, (laughs) hi, I'm Matt. (laughs) I'm N. (laughs) Welcome to Rip From the Headlines. First, I'll be going over season two, episode 16 of Law &
0: Order, which is titled Vengeance. And then afterwards, N will be telling us the true crime. Also, we have a Patreon. So if you like what we're producing and want to support us, you can support us in anywhere from a dollar up to $10 a month, and you get a bunch of free perks Uh, including monthly bonus episodes and video episodes of uh, us judging the fashion of Law & Order. So go and check that out on our website.
1: Exactly. And check out our merch store, by the way, because all the merch in there, by the way, is designed by myself and N, which I think is really cute.
0: And I've seen some of the merch produced, and it's really cute. Oh, Davey wears this shirt all the time. Oh, love it. So cute. All right, well... The
1: episode begins with some maintenance workers. Um, this uh, this opening scene was very long. It was very long, and, like, I even rewound for a moment to see, like, what are they talking about with each other? And then I thought, yeah. I, I couldn't care. I it couldn't prob- care yeah. at all. The whole time I was like, I am pretty sure none of this matters. <laughs> and thank, thankfully it does not. And uh, what they're doing is they're working on an elevator in an apartment building. And when the elevator that they're finished, you know, servicing goes down with the door still open. They There's a naked body of a dead woman with tape over her mouth and blood on her on top of it. That was very startling to suddenly see on the TV. Yeah, I bet that's why they kept the chat so long. They're like, ooh, this yeah. is going to really build. <laughs> um, then they cut immediately to a scene of her being zipped up into a body bag. And I just wanted to point this
0: out because her eyes are open so wide. So wide. <laughs> it so... was like, it was like, um, who's that, that <laughs> guest judge from RuPaul's Drag Race? Amber. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What planet are you on <laughs> that you remember this? <laughs> Well, it's get, it gets talked about all the time. To me, she um, looked like a Halloween prop. Like from Halloween Town. Oh, that <laughs> seems accurate,
1: yes. I, I, I oh wanna know God. who this is now. I'm try I'm like cycling through all RuPaul's Drag Race. Aubrey O'Day. Oh, from Danny DeKane.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that what she's from? That's exactly. I, I don't know her. Oh, I literally you... only know her from that episode of RuPaul's Drag Race where she's the guest judge when they're making their perfumes. Yes, she's from Danity Kane. Oh,
1: I know she's from Danity Kane. There isn't a mix I have that damage is not on.
0: <laughs> Hang on, now I'm just because I need you to see it. I'm going to send you a picture. Her her eyes are are like Ramona on the runway. <laughs> they're like you. There's white all the way around her irises. And uh, it's pretty intense.
1: Category is Ramona on the runway.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whew, that's that's pretty accurate as well. We're gonna use. The, I took a screenshot of it for Fashion Court. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so the detectives on, are now on the scene, and they're told that the victim has been dead for about two to three days, and she was she died by strangulation. They think by wire, and her name is Judy Bream. And she lives in the apartment building. When they hear this, this rings familiar to another case. And Soretta points it out. And then we get the opening sequence. So I knew I had just enough time to get in, like, some light activity, probably. Yeah. So I entered the competition show Double Dare. <laughs> and I was selected. So uh-huh. Davy and I flew out. We went on the show. And uh, when asked to, I, of course, chose the physical challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got slimed, I wrote a pie slide, I cleaned a giant tooth, and I'm back. <laughs>
0: you cleaned a giant tooth?
1: <laughs> I'm, like, fully mashing up, I think, all my 90s Nickelodeon shows. Did you also meet Olmec in the uh, <laughs> Hidden Temple? Yeah, I chose wisely, and I couldn't get the Shrine of the Silver Monkey, right, even <sighs> though it's three pieces, and one is a head
0: with a stick on it, and the Honest, feet are a lead. beast! It's the fact that those oh. children can't put a three-piece puzzle together when they're, like, 14 years old is pretty depressing. It's embarrassing. Did you, when you were on watching Legends of the Hidden Temple as a kid, was there a team that you were like, I would want to be that team oh, I always if I this, were on?
1: I always got this mixed up. I've got the list here. Okay. It's not the Purple Parrots. It's not the Blue
0: Barracudas. There was the Red Jaguars.
2: Mm-mm.
1: Was it the green, green, monkeys. Monkeys. green
0: monkeys. Green monkeys. Yeah. I always wanted to be the Silver Snakes.
1: Ooh, Silver Snakes is another good one.
0: Yeah. So you're back. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> Woo! And
1: uh we find out that the victim was a grad student, and the super of the apartment building says she was a model tenant. Her parents are out in Hartford, Connecticut, and she has no sort of like unusual boyfriends hanging around, no sign of forced entry, so has to be probably someone that she knew they supposed, but who could it be?
0: By the way, the, the actress who plays the mother in this uh-huh. is, I think oh. she has an eternal bitterness over the fact that she is not Angela Lansbury. Because she looks like she's, you know, it's like, <sighs> oh, the person who looks just like me is really famous, so I'm never going to be that famous. It's Angela uh, Lansbury. Yeah,
1: oh, I have a whole bunch of stuff to say about her, or mainly her hair. So, oh. um... All they find in the apartment that's helpful is a Polaroid photo wrapper, which would have been a throwback, but I guess that's not really a throwback anymore. And Logan asks, Think our guy's a Shutterbug? <laughs> and I just thought, This podcast is sponsored by Shutterbug. <laughs> Shutterbug. <laughs> it's like Shutterfly. So the, the evidence that they found, the little evidence they found, matches two other killings within the past six months, so they're wondering if it's related. But there's a little bit of difference with this particular one with the other two cases the women were killed someplace and then dropped somewhere else dumped elsewhere in this case it's in the same apartment building and speaking of no evidence they find no prints no fluids no hairs and no sign of any sort of penetration Mm -hmm. so they're like okay well let's start from scratch and they figure that it's got to be someone who can access the elevator shaft adoy (laughs) <laughs> like so in the next scene they go to meet up with her parents to you know let her know, let them know what happens and they're obviously very upset and the father the whole time speaks and whimpers and sort of he kind of looks a little bit like henry winkler
2: mm, I like can an see older that.
1: henry winkler you know and then the mother like you said i would describe her hair like a wig that is two sizes too small for her head.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like a child's wig stuck on like the back of her head. Mm-hmm. She looks like a little child, like Dutch figurine, the ones that are like all one like two colors.
0: <laughs> it's like it's like if if you get if you took Phoebe's bangs from Charmed, mm-hmm. the ones that are like oh. tiny little sharp teeth, but then made that the whole circumference of the head. Mm-hmm. That's her hair. It's like if you took like uh, a high school wrestling like headpiece.
1: <laughs> and then just attach the minimal amount of hair to it and put yes. it on her head and it didn't fit. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, so she's actually a guest star. Her name is Barbara Barry, and she is from a lot of things. But what I know her from is she was in Suddenly Susan. She oh. was her mom. So when they speak to them, the mother also reveals to them that she remembers when her daughter was there because they live in Connecticut and she was visiting. She was having her calls forwarded there. She had spoken to someone named Mr. Cook over the phone and he was going to fix something electrical for her. And they're like, ooh, electrical, ding, ding. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I also think the mother's performance in this scene, including her cries, which sound like this, (laughs) was very Tammy Brown. (laughs) Oh, yes. So they wonder why now the first two victims were left further away why is this one different they're wondering if maybe he got sloppy with this one so they're trying to find some sort of link between the three women and they're having a really hard time the only thing they can find is that two of them had been seeing a Dr. Philip Banks Mm. and they are like okay this sounds like our guy so they go to see Dr. Banks to try to confirm it he's very insulted by any accusations and he has an alibi for the night Judy was killed so they're like okay great so they move on, and they check the doctor that the other victim had, since, you know, that's the only one off, and they're hoping they can link it to Dr. Banks. Right. He says, Dr. Banks has a walking malpractice suit, and he's being sued for fraud, according to our shared bookkeeper. And they're like, you share a bookkeeper? He's like, yeah, why? Uh, duh, they're trying to link you to him. You could have just said <laughs> that from the jump. But hey, they find the bookkeeper, his name is Albert Cheney, and they find out that he killed a girl in Queens
0: and did time for it. Not only is his name Albert Cheney, his name is Albert Lawrence Cheney. <laughs> That's just a, a deep cut for all my Drag Race UK fans out
1: there. Um, They push past his, they go to his apartment, they push past his wife, and they pressure him to come to the station in classic Law & Order fashion. He goes down, but he says, I haven't done any murder, I haven't done anything. That, that case a while ago was was unfounded against me but my lawyer insisted i take a deal you know it was the best situation for me so i did five years and that's eh, not
0: suspicious at all can i ask your opinion on this actor's acting ability i don't know if i had a lot of opinion about his acting
1: ability besides this scene because uh-huh. he's supposed to look like exasperated or i'm saying uh-huh. that word wrong he's supposed to look like tired and all this kind of stuff yeah and it feels like there's a huge delay before everything he does yes it looks like someone is off camera screaming to him like lay down on the table look (laughs) tired
0: rub your eyes and it looks like he's just like processing it for a while before he does anything the reason i brought that up is his main like physical motion that he makes through this entire episode is touching either the front or the back of his wrists to various parts of his head and face (laughs) he puts his head in his hands a lot too yes a lot in slow
1: motion. They're trying, that's what this whole scene is, is they're, they're wearing him down. It's not great, to be honest. He's asking for like a break, maybe he's tired, he wants to lay down. Um, they're kind of denying him this and it's actually Captain Craig in doing the interrogation this time for once. And we basically learn from this chat that he was formerly an electrician and on the night of the murder, he says he was with his wife and he doesn't know Judy, but he wonders what happens to her when they mention her name. And when they, fa- when they tell him that she's dead, he looks upset. So clearly he knows Judy. Back at his place, his wife tells detectives, yeah, we were together until around 8 o'clock, and then she went to work. The um, wife, by the way, is the other guest star. She's not a huge okay. guest star, but what she was in is one of my favorites. Uh, she plays Sarah Cheney, uh, and her name is, I'm going to say it wrong, Ratanya Alda. Okay. And she was Carol Ann and Mommy Dearest,
0: the, oh my God, the housekeeper. Wow. Oh,
1: I love Mommy Dearest. And I loved, and you've seen him at the housekeeper, especially when she's like, I'm not mad at you, I'm mad at the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Maniac. So- they go back to the interrogation room, and Captain Cragen is still putting the pressure on him, and it seems like hours and hours and hours, they're showing him crime scene photos, they're making accusations, and blah blah blah, and then they're like, he's not He's not giving anything up, and they show him a set of keys, and they're like, which one of these is to the elevator? Couldn't they just oh my bring the keys to the and elevator and try them?
0: Yes, and they like poured out a pile of keys that are apparently all of his keys. And no exaggeration, I think there was like 40 or 50 different keys <laughs> that they went... I, I have never seen such a large pile of keys in my life. And not one, nary a key ring to be found. No. Who just keeps loose
1: keys. So uh, they find out, nothing about the elevator key right away, but they do find out that one of the keys is to a rental unit... They bring the key to the retina unit, they open it up, and they find a box full of Polaroids of women tied up with blood on them and looking dead. dead. So (laughs) they arrest him, he pleads not guilty to all three murders, and he's held without bail. Unfortunately for the prosecution, the judge decides that the photos they found are inadmissible because the location where they were obtained from was found under questionable circumstances, which is true. And now they have nothing linking him to the other two murders. And so the trial must go forth with no mention of the first two murders. They're only going to be trying Judy Breeden case. So they dig into his past. They're trying to find out what else they can get since they can't bring up anything uh, about his previous behavior, and they're worried about winning the case. They look into that charge he had previously, and Robinette discovers that he had confessed to that murder, actually, so they had gotten him to say he had done it, but he was able to get the whole charge pled down because he had asked to see his psychologist, and they denied him, and so it was kind of looked at like the same way of denying someone attorney. The lawyer, yeah. So he was able to plead down to five years. So it wasn't just like uh, a deal, it was, you know, you confessed. So right. with this information, they're like, oh my gosh, we definitely have the guy. Like, we have the photos. We have everything. Like, how are we going to do it? So Stone and Robinette have a conversation where, might I say, Stone is wearing a very nice cardigan. I it's, didn't notice. I was like, are you not wearing a suit for once? Wow. I was like, wow, look at you. The softer side of Stone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Robinette is having an internal struggle with this whole thing because they're... He looks at it like they're defending the rights of Cheney to be tried in New York City. So it feels like they're defending him. And shouldn't the victim's family have some sort of justice? And, you know, uh, Stone is very grounded about it saying, you know, we're not out for blood. It's not eye for an eye. This shouldn't be about vengeance. That's not how the justice system works. We're back in court. And this scene starts with a courtroom artist who's being very kind and correcting Mrs. Bream's hair on this stand. Yes. He was like, <laughs> that haircut is a mistake. I'm going to give you some better hair. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to make you a blonde. I'm going to make it fit your head. Really kind. Uh, on the stand, she is giving her testimony that she had heard a man on the other side of her daughter's door when she was on the phone with her. But on cross examination, the defense makes her mention that. She knows many of her male friends. It could have been anybody, and so why could why why did it have to be the defendant? Court adjourns for the day, and the DA's office is using their last their last-ditch effort to get somebody on their in their side, on their corner. And so they bring in Cheney's wife for questioning, try another shot at her, and Stone decides to show her uh, the photos from the Polaroid. And she has a strong emotional reaction to them. And it causes her to confess to her lying for her husband to confirm his alibi earlier. He, in fact, had come home that night bloody and frantic with his toolbox and Polaroid camera. I mean, mm-hmm. he might as well have just had like murderer written on his back.
2: <laughs> and
1: um, she said that he told her he'd hurt a man in a fight. And he asked her to lie for him because, you know, he thought he'd get in trouble for it. And she says on the stand, I didn't know he was an animal. Dramatic. Mm. So we find out that the case concludes and he's convicted to 25 to life. And Stone says, you know, good news, people die in prison all the time, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally his closing line as well, people die. Hope he dies soon. And that is the end of the episode. Great. So, Matt. Yes.
0: Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> are you ready? So You may remember last week, I made a proposal that if we have an episode that's not inspired by a specific crime, we could pick a story that we've really wanted to cover or that we find really fascinating. Mm, Is this the catalyst for what made you want to make that decision? It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: selfish. (laughs) You just saw you had one coming up?
0: (laughs) Yes, I was like, I have an opportunity here. I'm going to go for it. Good for you. Okay, what is it then? Okay. Brace yourself. I think you know this story, but brace yourself for The Missing Girls of Panama. Oh, I know very little about this, but I do, I do know oh. it. Okay. This story. Yeah. It's just so fascinating to me. Okay. I'm excited to hear more about this. So The Missing Girls of Panama is kind of like the the name of the case in popular culture. It's the story of Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froon. And Chris Kremer's and Lisanne were two young women who lived in Amersfoort in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm sure there's there's a couple words coming up that I'm sure I'm gonna not say correctly. (laughs) Um, They had both grown up there, and they lived together and worked together at a local cafe named Inden Kleinenhop. Inden Kleinenhop. Yes. This
1: is very Rose Nyland from.
0: uh... (laughs) (laughs) Where's she from? Oh my god! No. Oh no, where she's from in Golden Girls. I think your uh, Golden Gaze card is gonna be reduct. Oh my God, revoked. I swear I won't look it up, but it's gonna come to me when I'm not thinking of it, so I'm gonna stop. (laughs) I, I know the name of it, so when you get it, I'll be able to verify. Okay. All right. So Chris Kremers is 21 years old. She's described. So one of the things about this case is it's been like pretty widely covered by a lot of folks. And one of the things that you notice as you start to research cases is you'll see sort of like the same sound bites kind of regurgitated over and over. Mm-hmm. So Chris is like described in every article as like literally open, creative, and responsible. She and uh, Lisanne were planning a trip to Panama. And this was kind of like a celebration for both of them, because they had both recently graduated. Uh, Chris was planning to, after their trip to Panama, go to graduate school for art history. Uh, she was kind of like outgoing and had striking strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. And big fan of the arts, as I mentioned. She was a fan of Pearl Jam and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, hmm. which you've seen um, uh, The Good Place, right? Yes. I, one of my favorite bits in there is the recurring question about like, have you at any time owned a red hot chili pepper CD <laughs> It's like this question of whether you belong in hell or not? Oh, I, I was interrupting you because St. Olaf, St. Olaf, St. Okay, Olaf. I yep. can breathe. You got it. Go ahead. Okay. Lisanne was 22. So a little older than Chris, uh, Described as aspiring, optimistic, intelligent, and also pretty athletic. She was a volleyball player in college, and she had done some other kind of adventurous sports. She'd been skydiving, she was into mountaineering, and she was six feet tall as well. Graduated with a degree in applied psychology from Deventer. And uh, as I mentioned, they were living together and working together at a local cafe. Mm -hmm. So they had saved up enough money and were going on this trip to Panama. Both they wanted to learn Spanish, and they also uh, found an opportunity to do uh, volunteer work with the local community at a school. And so they were going on this sort of sightseeing trip, but also this kind of personally enriching trip. So on March 15th of 2014, they arrive in Panama, and their trip was going to be six weeks long. And they spent the first two weeks literally just kind of like vacationing and touring. They like went to dance clubs, they went to the beach a bunch. And then they uh, went to the city where they were going to do their volunteer work and spend a little bit more time. And that is a city called, let me just double check the pronunciation before I say it. The city is spelled B O Q U E T E, which some people pronounce Boquete and the internet also offers the pronunciation of boquet mm, Okay. I'm going to go with Boquete. That sounds prob- That sounds more natural. Thank you. So, Boquete is a small mountain town near the border of Costa Rica and a river called the Caldera, and it's a pretty small town. It only has a population of about 19,000 people, but it's really Kind of well known as a destination place for vacationing. A lot of um, expats live in Boquette. Mm-hmm. and also there are indigenous tribes native to Panama that are kind of in the surrounding countryside as well. Okay, so uh, Boquette has a active volcano named the Baru volcano, and as I mentioned, the highlands kind of around the volcano. And uh, in surrounding areas are home to the Ngobe tribe uh, an indigenous people to Panama. I do not want to live anywhere near an active volcano. No, thank you. Just putting it out there. I think, though, that like most, not most, but a lot of volcanoes are active. Like, um, isn't Yellowstone? Oh, the isn't that an active volcano? I believe so. Yeah. Somebody's <laughs> going to write in and be like, that's not even a volcano. It's a rock. so uh lisanne and chris arrived to boquette and they went to the school where they were supposed to be volunteering this was on march 29th and there seems to have been some kind of miscommunication because the staff of the school told them no we don't have any spots for you to volunteer goodbye and there again, seems to be like maybe they the school thought they were coming a week later. And so Chris and Lisa are sort of like, all right, I guess, like, what do we do now for a week? So they just kind of started making plans to tour around Boquette. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of like their plans went awry, but they were making the best of it and figuring, you know what, let's just spend our time here in this little city. So on April 1st, Lisanne and Chris decided that they would go hiking, and the area surrounding the Baru volcano is what's referred to as cloud forests. It's like this beautiful, super lush, kind of jungly area that can often have like really dense cloud cover and fog. Um, So it's kind of this sort of like magical experience. That sounds like exactly where I want to be. I changed my mind. Okay. Okay. I changed my mind, Daddy. I do want a golden goose. <laughs> I do want to go to the Baru volcano. I want to go to a cloud forest. So on April first, they took a taxi cab to the trailhead for a trail called El Pianista. And the taxi driver would later say that he dropped them off about 1.40 p.m. But this was inconsistent with later kind of information that they would get that the women actually started their hike shortly after 11 a.m. And they had clearly planned for this to just be like a day hike where they would be gone for a couple of hours because they only had one backpack. They didn't bring any extensive supplies. They were just wearing like jean shorts and tank tops. Mm-hmm. And the El Pianista Trail is about an 8-kilometer-long trail, and up at the peak is the Continental Divide. So, um, you know, the water flows one direction one way and flows the other direction the other way, kind of heading toward the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Oh, cool. So it's a one-way trail, meaning that you have to go in and come out the same direction. So there's no, like, loops or forks. It's just a one-way path, and if you want to go back, you just— turn around. So one of the websites that describes La Pianista, a blogger says, El Pianista Trail is one of the moodiest cloud forests I have ever adventured into. Rain droplets falling to the ground from every leaf and branch while mists float through dramatically. The early stages of the hike are open fields with mountains on all sides you can already see the clouds hugging the summit of the mountain. So by all accounts, just beautiful terrain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the first like 45 minutes, as I mentioned, it's kind of more open fields. And then the second part of it is sort of that more dense jungle area with a lot of birds and, you know, insects and things like that. And then that lasts for about an hour and a half before you get to the cloud forest area, which is very humid and feels like you're walking in clouds. And then beyond that, after about 30 minutes in the cloud forest, you'll reach the top of the El Pianista Trail and uh, kind of have some beautiful views from the summit. Mm -hmm. At the summit is a warning sign warning hikers not to proceed further, because the territory beyond the summit is really narrow, it's steep, it's full of really rough jungle canyons, it's not maintained in any way. Uh, by any sort of like park rangers, and it's almost exclusively used by the Nagobe tribe who are indigenous to that area. Um, it's pretty steep terrain with uh, what are called monkey bridges, which are sort of like wire or rope bridges that allow you to cross the river, but they're really dangerous because you're literally like walking on a steel cable as you're holding on to another steel cable. Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. When Lisanne and Chris went hiking, this was April, so it wasn't, it was kind of more of the dry season, and actually Boquette had been having a two-month-long drought when they arrived. But when it does start to rain, the conditions along El Pianista can change pretty quickly. Um, It can create thick mists. It can, uh, you know, change the ground into, like, really thick, high mud that makes it hard to traverse, and you lose visibility pretty quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So while most of the websites and books about El Pianista say that it's best hiked with a guide who is familiar with the area, a lot of people do hike it alone all the time. So on April 1st, Lisanne and Chris, as I said, headed to the El Pianista Trail. And before then, they had posted on Facebook that they were going for a hike. Some reports say that the the women also took a family dog from the restaurant that they had been working at in LPN or in, in Boquette. And the dog's name is Asul. And apparently by some of the articles, their dog kind of routinely goes with people on the hike up to El Pianista, and, um, go, you know, stays with them and comes back. Aww. Now, Lisanne and Chris were also really good about keeping in touch with their parents throughout the trip, like sending them daily text messages and WhatsApps. And their parents kind of got concerned when they didn't receive a text from them on April 2nd. On April 2nd, Chris and Lysanne also missed an appointment with a local guide who was supposed to take them on the El Pianista Trail, which is odd because they went there themselves the day before. Mm -hmm. So... By some accounts, the dog that had gone with them came home on April 1st without Chris Early San, and that kind of got the family at the restaurant worried, uh, because their dog doesn't usually come back alone, and, yeah. you know, it's getting dark, what's going on? Yeah. So at this point, it's April 3rd, the women have not shown up back in Boquette, and So the authorities began a search of El Pianista Trail and some of the surrounding forest to try to find them. According to multiple sources I read, locals often get involved anytime somebody gets missing, or goes missing, because they really value the safety of visitors, and Boquette is really known for tourism, and so they want to make sure that people are safe, mm-hmm. because then they want tourism to Boquette. Right. So, <laughs> so on April 3rd, both authorities and local residents began searching around El Pianista to find Chris Lee San. On April 6th, both Chris and Lisann's parents arrive in Boquette along with Dutch police, dog units, and detectives, uh, all from the, ne- the Netherlands. Bleh, all from the Netherlands to conduct a search of the forest, which goes on for almost ten days. Oh my God! The parents were even offering a thirty thousand dollar reward for anyone who had information on Chris and Lisann's whereabouts. But by April fourteenth, they hadn't been able to find Chris or Lisann. And due to kind of heavy rain that was starting to fall, you know, they had to call off the searches because it was getting too dangerous and the dogs wouldn't be able to search anything, any trails because there had been so much rain. So at a press conference, the Boquette police announced that they were scaling back the search and just kind of like shifting to like monitoring for any updates that they might get. This, of course, is not great news to Chris and Lisand's parents who are. Still trying to find their children. Oh my gosh. So the police po- spokesperson at this press conference said that the, that the area around Boquette had been already thoroughly searched, and if the women were there, they would have been found. So about a month later, on May 29th, Chris's parents come to Panama again, and they attempt to recreate the steps that their daughter took on the day of April 1st when she disappeared. They spoke with local journalists along this process, and Chris's mother, in some of that footage, which you can find on YouTube of them, like, recreating the steps that they think their daughter took Mm -hmm. on El Pianista, and she says, We followed the path, and you would really have to make an effort here to get lost. And alongside the trail, there are no steep ravines or slopes that you could, she says, crash into, but I think she probably means, like, fall down. Right. Right. She says, my daughter was kidnapped. I don't know by who, but I'm sure she was kidnapped. In a video of um, the Kemmers walking that trail, there's some interesting footage where you hear one of the guides speaking to one of the other guides saying, I told you not to say anything in Spanish. Oh. So more on that later. Oh my gosh. Okay. So some eyewitnesses claimed that prior to departing for the hike, the women had been seen having brunch with two Dutch men. And there there were photographs of them with these Dutch men. Apparently, they had already left the country by the time that Chris and Sand disappeared. And so that didn't end up turning up any useful information for them. So we're at late May at this point, And they had disappeared on April 1st. Ten weeks later, on ten weeks after their disappearance, on June 14th, a local woman from the Nagobe tribe who lives in a nearby village called Alta Romero turns in Lisanne's backpack. Mm. She reported that she had found it near the bank of the Culebra River, near the village of Alta Romero. She was at working in her rice paddy when she spotted it. And based on the articles that I could find and also my ability to read maps, which is minimal... <laughs> <laughs> okay. the location where the backpack was found is about 15 kilometers from where the women had been hiking so that's a pretty big distance what is
1: 15 kilometers in terms of like miles i'm really i'm dumb gonna that say kind of something
0: thing. like seven to eight but i'm also not great at that okay um 9.3 miles gotcha okay so yeah. a pretty far distance for her backpack to just show up yeah so The woman said, you know, this is my rice paddy. I work here. Um, I'm sure that this backpack was not here yesterday. So this is June 14th, and the backpack suddenly appears at this kind of area near the river where she says it had not been seen before. Inside the backpack was $83 in cash, Lisanne's passport, a water bottle, two pairs of sunglasses, her camera... And both of the bras that the women had been wearing at the start of their hike, as well as both of their phones, all of which appeared to be in good condition. Not good. Here's what, again, it's a little tricky. Some articles say one thing, some say another thing. A lot of the articles say that the backpack was like bone dry, clearly had not been in the water. Everything inside it was totally dry and fine. One, literally one thing that I found, but this was kind of directly connected to the Panamanian police, said that there was some water damage to some of the things in there, but everything was still in working order. So I'm not quite sure which is correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, There may have been some water damage to things, but they were all still in fine condition. Okay. So from the backpack, they obtained three different DNA samples. None of them belonged to Chris or Lee But the DNA, um, they did not collect DNA from the people who had found the backpack. So ultimately, those DNA samples never matched anything, in part because the (laughs) Panamanian police never collected samples. And I will say, a lot of the articles that I read talk about how the Panamanian police kind of, like, bungled this case. Yeah. Yeah. So it was later found that there were, I think, 13 different sets of fingerprints on some of the items inside of the backpack. None of these matched Chris or Lee Sam, but because both the local woman who had found the backpack and other police folks had touched the backpack, they weren't always wearing gloves when they went through the backpack— These 13 fingerprints only matched one person in a system. But again, based on all records, I could find that never led them to any sort of fruitful inquiry. Mm. And I mean, it had been so long since they, from when they went missing to the backpack was recovered, you know? Correct. So this is where things get really interesting and creepy. Mm,
2: Okay.
0: So they were able to look at the phone data because both Chris and Sand's phones were in fine condition in the backpack. So what they found was just hours after they began their hike, Chris's phone dialed 112, which is the international emergency number, Mm -hmm. as well as 911, which is the emergency number in Panama. This call was made at 4.39pm, which is only about five hours after they reportedly began their hike, and pretty close after the time when they should have reached the summit of the mountain. Okay, so they should have at least reached the summit or like been on their way back down. Correct. The reason that this call was made still remains unclear. Some people theorize that they may have become lost and immediately called emergency, or maybe one of them injured themselves and they needed help, or some people think that they may have been being followed and they were calling emergency to alert them. Hmm. There's no recordings of their calls? So, well, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so I'll note that the, those who question the theory that they got lost at this point say that even if they had gone over the ridge of the summit into the area that says, like, don't go here, the trails are still one directional, even though they're not well maintained. Mm-hmm. So they're, So the people who are like, something happened other than them getting lost argue that The fact that you could just reverse course makes it unlikely that they would have just gotten lost.
1: So would you say that since the trails are one-directional, that they're like sort of like a Harry Styles trail? Like that kind of (sighs) style of
0: trail? Would you say that? I would never say that. (laughs) Okay. So people also point out that calling emergency services so quickly after they had supposedly had reached the summit indicates that something went wrong pretty quickly— which also doesn't really support the theory that they got lost. Mm. Because if they got lost, then they might have waited a bit, tried to find their way out before calling emergency services. Right. That that call was at 4.39 p.m. at 4.51. Lisanne's phone made another attempt to 112. But again, because they were in such a remote area with such thick, dense foliage coverage, they none of the calls went through because they had no cell reception. Okay. Now, while the official police files do not reflect this, a leaked phone log was printed in a local Panamanian newspaper that showed that one call to 911 on April 2nd connected for one second before it broke up and disconnected. Okay. So, now we're at April 4th, three days after they began hiking. Lisanne's phone battery dies at 5 a.m., and was never used again. Chris's phone also did not make any more outgoing calls, but data would show that it was turned on intermittently to search for reception. Okay. Between April 5th and April 11th, um, Chris's phone was turned on multiple times, but the correct pin to open the phone was never entered. So in this period of six days, the phone was turned on a bunch of times, but nobody ever tried to enter the pin to open the phone. So some theorize that this meant Chris was no longer in possession of her phone because she would know the pin to her own phone. Right. And so whoever had it, which presumably could be Lissanne, didn't know the code to unlock it. Makes sense. This is also one of those pieces of information that's pretty widely debated. Some articles say that there were 70 incorrect attempts to answer or to access Chris's phone without the correct pin being entered <sighs> some say that there though there was 70 attempts or it showed 70 attempts to like That the phone had been, like, activated, but not that the incorrect PIN had been entered 77 some odd times. So there's a little bit debate as to whether somebody was trying to get into the phone or just, like, looking at it to see if there was cell reception. Because even if you don't know the PIN, you would still be able to make an emergency call if you had reception. That's true. That's true. So April 11th, which is 10 days after they began their hike, Chris's phone was turned off at 10:51 or sorry Chris's phone was turned on at 10:51 a.m. and turned off for the last time at 11:56 a.m. Okay. So this is 10 days after their disappearance and if these possessions were still in the hands of one of these women that means one of them survived for 10 days in the jungle which is kind of bonkers I would never be able to do that. I mean I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to survive probably too. I know honestly. That's the information they were able to get from Chris and Lisanne's phones. They also had information from their camera. So the f- camera showed photos of them on April 1st, all along the beginning parts of the trail, all the way up to the summit. The photos of them at the summit are of them like smiling, taking selfies, posing together. And those photos showed nothing unusual. And it was a few hours later that their first emergency calls would be would go to 911 or 122.
2: Mhm.
0: So shortly the next photos after those happy photos on the summit, the next photo shows Chris beyond the summit, further into the jungle on one of the trails that's almost exclusively used again by residents of the Ngobe tribe.
2: Mhm,
0: okay. So photo evidence does indicate both Chris and Lisanne went beyond the summit. Mhm. The next photo is of Chris crossing a stream. Unlike the smiling photos, Chris's expression in these photos has garnered a lot of discussion. Uh, some people describe her as looking slightly worried or slightly annoyed. And these photos of of Chris are taken, again, presumably by Lissanne, and they're kind of A good distance ahead, which is sort of odd because when you're hiking with somebody, like the distance is a little unusual that people note that in some of the photos. Mm -hmm. On April 8th, 90 flash photos were taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. deep in the jungle and in complete darkness. 90. 90. Okay. So estimates are that one photo was taken every two minutes. And the photos, you can find almost every single photo online. A few of the photos seem to indicate that they were near a river or a ravine. Some of the photos show things like a twig with kind of like some red or orange plastic wrapped around it and candy wrappers on top of a rock. And theories about that photo range from it being a place for them to mark where they had been so that they didn't go walking in circles. Some people think it could have been a grave marker. Others think it could have been a, kind of a way to catch rainwater for drinking, mm, okay. Another photo shows a picture, again, of a rock. And on top of that rock is what looks like some toilet paper maybe sort of arranged in a way to write a message, as well as a mirror laying face up on the rock, which some people think could have been a way to sort of like catch light and alert any overhead search parties. But again, they were in such dense jungle that it's unlikely that that would have caught any light and alerted any aerial searches. Right. Another photo shows the back of Chris's head. And it's just a a really close close close-up of her head. Like her hair occupies the entire frame of the photo. But there's no no kind of like head injury or explanation as to why a close-up photo of the back of Chris's head would have been taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. on April 8th. Mm, Weird. Some people think that it was an attempt... Uh, by Chris to take a selfie of the back of her head to see like if she had injured herself to maybe get a look at it. Oh. But most people point out that her hair in this photo looks clean. It looks kind of, you know, she spent 10 days in the jungle, but it looks like well kept and all of that. So it, it didn't show indications of like a fall and being matted with blood or water or mud or anything like that. Right. Okay. So n- no indication of an injury, but just a Strange photo, close-up photo of the back of her head. And this is um this is a digital camera, right? Yes. Mm,
1: okay. I think that so be strange reason to take a picture of the back of your head with a digital camera though.
0: Yes. So it's worth noting that because it's a digital digital camera, they were able to compare the cell phone activity times with the times of the photos. Mm. And at the time that this strange photo of the back of Chris's head was taken, this is the period of time when there were no more successful attempts to unlock Chris's phone. So we could assume from that, perhaps, that she was either dead at this point or pretty badly injured and not able to unlock her phone. Okay. So these 90 photos that were taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., there are multiple theories as to why these photos exist. And I'll go over each of them. Okay. Some theorize that the women were trying to send a message by flagging down search parties, like using the flash on the camera to get attention. But most people point out there was no overhead search parties at this point so they wouldn't have like heard a helicopter and tried to signal or to try to kind of flag it down and everything's so dense they didn't really think it would have helped anybody and it was all like a week into having them disappeared so why wouldn't they have done this sooner yeah others theorize that the women were using their flash to find their way in the dark but this is a pretty widely discredited or or not widely accepted theory because most people say in the, in the thick darkness of the jungle around the Baru volcano, the flash in the middle of the night would be so bright that it would make it harder for you to see where you're going, and it would reduce your visibility because it would, like, essentially blind you temporarily.
1: Yeah, and honestly, like, in any kind of environment, just a flash from your camera isn't really effective in helping you get any—if you're outside,
0: especially. Right. And the photos are all from the same rough location, which means that the women were not using those photos and moving at that point. They were all kind of like right there. Yeah. In one spot. So they weren't on the move when these 90 photos were taken either. And uh, it's worth pointing out, authorities are still unable to, d- to determine that the photos were in fact taken by Lisanne or Chris, because other than the photo of the back of Lisanne's head, neither of them are in the photos. Right. So the discovery of the backpack and the phone and camera data allowed the Panamanian and Dutch investigators to go on another search along the Culebra River to try to find the women or at least try to recover their remains. And again, they were aided by members of the Nagobe tribe, and they were able to find Chris Kremer's denim shorts on a rock on the opposite side of the riverbank. Here's what's weird. Rumors claimed originally that the shorts were found like zipped up and neatly folded on the rock, but this was discredited. But you will see a lot of articles out there of people saying that. Mm-hmm. But the jean shorts were found two months after the backpack was discovered, and it was nearby to where they discovered a, a fragment of a pelvic bone and a boot with a foot still inside of it. This led investigators to find 33 widely scattered bones along the riverbank. But what's weird is that the bone fragments were found both upriver and downriver of where the backpack was found. And DNA testing did confirm that these fragments belonged to both Lisanne and Chris, Mm. so the women were confirmed dead at this point.
1: Okay.
0: So there are two primary theories for what happened to Lisanne and Chris. The first being in line with the official investigation that this was an accident. This theory claims that the women went beyond the summit of El Pianista and got lost. One or both may have fallen from one of the monkey bridges in the area, which, again, are notoriously unsafe. And they theorize that, um, you know, after the women died as a result of maybe falling, starvation, any kind of thing that could happen out in the wilderness, that scavengers had eaten their remains, and also that some of their remains had been dragged along the river, causing their decomposition. So there's a lot of widespread acceptance for this case, because both locals and experts worldwide attest to how dangerous and scary the dense jungle can be. And one of the articles talks about how when you're in that dense of jungle, when the sun starts to go down, like darkness comes on super fast. Because once the light kind of moves from overhead, you really have no light at that point. So once the sun sets in the dark jungle, um, due to the pretty dense canopy... No, wildlife noise starts to happen. You're in pitch blackness. And a lot of people describe what's called forest madness, which is like this fear of being in the wilderness alone, surrounded by animals, and it and it makes you panic and it makes you make bad decisions. Hmm, okay. So they theorized that the women probably panicked when darkness came on, and they tried to move over some dangerous terrain in the dark, and the likelihood of injuring themselves in these conditions was very high. And so that's what the official investigators say is most likely to have happened to both Chris and Lisanne. Hmm. But there are a lot of inconsistencies and unanswered questions with this theory, which is why I find this ca- case so fascinating. Okay. So... I have a, a good list of these inconsistencies <laughs> and questions. So, again, the first point of questioning this theory is that a leaked Panamanian police report had originally declared this a homicide. Oh. But it, that never showed up in any sort of, like, future reports. So that's odd. Mm. This this second theory is that the women had met with some kind of foul play when they were hiking El Pianista. Well, I'll get into that. So I'm let me present the things that support that theory or at least cast doubt on the accident theory. Okay. So first, as I mentioned, the area around Boquette had experienced a two-month drought. So the river was barely flowing, or flowing really slowly. And so many people claim that the official declaration that the river contributed to the decomposition of these women's remains is really unlikely. So then you kind of go, well, where would the decomposition come from then? Right. So forensics investigated the uh, skeletal remains that they found, and they found no signs of cutting, hacking, gunshots, teeth, or claw marks, and no microscopic signs of animal predation. So the, the theory that scavengers had eaten their remains is kind of not not demonstrated on the skeletal remains that they have. Okay. A forensic anthropologist would later claim that the bones had, quote, no discernible scratches of any kind, neither of natural nor cultural orig- origin. There are no marks on the bones at all. Isn't that weird, though? Super weird. Because... If they had been eaten by wildlife, there should have been like teeth marks, some kind of indication of scavengers or bacteria, you know, whatever kind of eats flesh. Yeah. Additionally, there are no predators indigenous to that area that are known to crush bones. So the fact that there are 33 skeletal fragments and there's no predators that would crush bones like that and the river was too weak to have caused them to like their bodies to hit the rocks and break up or anything like that is also not supported. So it's very curious that the bone fragments were kind of just so tiny. Yeah. All of the bone fragments were found on dry land, sometimes kilometers apart, which experts agree is not a distance that any animal or scavenger would have moved them.
2: Hmm.
0: Months later, in 2014, they would find a rib bone belonging to Chris Kremer. That rib bone was sun-bleached, like it had been laying in the sun for a long time, and it was found together with bone remnants from an infant and an old woman. What? So this added another complexity, because some of the remains, like the foot in the shoe that they found, showed slow decomposition, whereas this rib bone belonging to Chris was like bleached white, like museum-level yeah. skeleton. So that those differing levels of decomposition are very strange. A cadaver lab, su- cadaver lab supervisor also stated that most people who drown and fall in river- or rapids are usually found in one piece up to a year later, and that the rate of decomposition of the remains that they found is unlikely fast. He stated that, quote, after two months, the bones should not be there or should not be bare, but still covered with significant amounts of flesh unless, of course, there was human intervention. Hmm. Some of the reports indicated that some of the remains had been treated with either phosphorus or lime to aid in their decomposition or sorry, lye. Those are widely used in the area by local farmers as part of like soil treatment and things like that. But it's also used by the cartel to speed up decomposition. Mm. And neither phosphorus nor lye is found in the local soil naturally. Right. Okay. In total, they have only ever recovered about 10% of Lisanne's bones and 5% of Chris's. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: Which a Panamanian forensic anthropologist called very strange (laughs) that no larger bones had ever been located. Additionally, Many think it's impossible that Lisanne and Chris got confused on the way, on, like, how do we get back to Boquette? Because it's a one-way trail. You just reverse course. Right. And it's very, very obvious on the other side of the summit that the terrain and paths change drastically and becomes pretty heavily wooded. And so a man named Rick Morales, who's a local to the region and also a jungle survival specialist, stated in 2011 that he thinks it's very unlikely that the women got lost because the trails are pretty clear and well marked, and other tourists have gotten lost there, and they've all been located really close by the trails, which, again... Chris and Lee Sand were never found near the trails, and their remains were found a pretty fair distance from the trail. Right, and their remains still haven't been found, and they've searched so much. Yes. Additionally, computer data recovered from the women's laptops in Boquette show that they had looked up El Pianista Trail, and the information on the websites they looked up mentions don't go beyond the summit. They also had guidebooks with them that referenced El Pianista, and in those guidebooks, it also says, do not go beyond the summit. So, strange that they would have seen a sign, potentially seen it on a website, seen it on a book, and still gone over the summit anyway. Also, the bones that are most likely to show signs of violence are the skull and the arms, but those bones have never been recovered. Another pattern that raised questions to the theory of them having simply been lost was the phone usage. So why, for example, did they only try to make one emergency call when they were, in theory, lost, and then power off their phones for another 14 hours before trying again? Right. And at the second attempt, they did this and turned off their phones for 19 hours. From the night of April 2nd into April 3rd, Lisanne's phone was turned on, but no attempts to make calls were made during that time. And again, this is where I said the... The one article references that the incorrect pin was entered 77 times on Chris's phone. So people were like, who had the phone at this point? Yeah. Chris's family lawyer believes that the women were likely murdered. He says, or sorry, this was spurred by newspapers publishing speculations that a criminal network existed that kidnaps people to extract their organs. Which again, as we know, a lot of the organ theft rumors are literally just rumors. So take that with a grain of salt. Right. But their families point to the fact that the women had no reason to go beyond the summit, and they had the warning sign to turn back, and they theorize that the location and condition of the bones suggest that they were cut up to conceal their bodies. But again, there was no cut marks. Additionally, one detail that I didn't mention earlier is in the camera data. One single photo was deleted from the camera, and it was the only photo that occurred between the photos at the summit and the sequence of nighttime photos between 1am and 4am. Hmm. So this photo is very widely debated because the women had been in Panama for two weeks using this camera all the time, and the camera battery was nowhere near low, so it wasn't like they were trying to preserve this camera battery.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. The women had never deleted a single other photo from the camera, including many that were like bad or fuzzy photos throughout their trip. So like why would this one have been deleted when they're in the middle of the jungle right before they're taking these weird photos? Okay, yeah. So US court certified forensic photographer Keith Rosenthal stated, quote, if the photograph was deleted in the camera, that image would most likely still be on the memory card because even when photos are deleted, you can usually find like portions of it when you're doing like forensic computer work, but they were nobody has ever been able to recover this deleted photo. Mm. So some people including Rosenthal, this uh, certified forensic photographer, say that the fact that they never have been able to recover this photo and the fact that it's been deleted from a camera in a way that makes it unretrievable indicates that somebody must have used a computer to remove that photo after the women had gone missing and were declared dead. Okay. So people who suspect that foul play was involved in the women's disappearance speculate that the women this missing photo... That the women had taken an image of someone following them, perhaps somebody who may have captured and murdered them, and it was later deleted either by that person to protect their identity, or it was deleted by the Panamanian police because it provided evidence in some way that contradicted the official story of the women having disappeared, and they didn't want that. Further evidence for the theory that the women met with foul play is that the women were alive, or at least one of them was alive while the search was going on, and they were never near any trail, which is strange because if they had just gotten lost, they probably shouldn't be that far from the trail by the time search parties arrived. You know, the people were yelling. They should have been able to hear something because, again, people do get lost near the trail, and they're usually found. Yeah, yeah. The backpack did not have any blood on it. It was in perfect order. Nothing was really broken inside, which the theory that if they fell and injured themselves seems unlikely that nothing in the backpack would have had any fall damage. Also, there's the question of Chris's denim shorts, which were found on a rock in pretty good condition. Mm-hmm. And people say, okay, well, if they were eaten by scavengers, there would be like claw marks, tear marks, blood on these shorts which there was none, and there was no bodily fluid on the shorts, which there would have been during if, they, if those denim shorts had been on her body during the process of decomposition. Mm, okay. So all evidence points to the shorts having been removed prior to her death. But then why would Chris have taken off her jean shorts and walked around the jungle in her underwear? One source I read pointed out that the use of the camera is pretty consistent up to the peak and shortly after, that the women kind of, you know, were using it at regular intervals. But once they went beyond the peak, it wasn't used again until those nighttime photos nearly a week later. Further, people point out that the camera had video capabilities and would have provided them the opportunity to document what was happening to them assuming that they had access to the camera and somebody else wasn't in possession of it or preventing them from accessing it exactly many people think that the if the women were aware of their impending death either you know from injury or starvation or whatever they would have recorded some kind of farewell message because that's very very common when people get lost or injured in similar circumstances they typically have a message where they're like if this is found this is what happens to me tell my family i love them etc None of that was there. There were no notes on their phones. None of that. Right. So I mentioned also that the women had planned a hike with a guide uh, for El Pianista the next day. That guide is the last person to have seen them alive. By his report, when they didn't show up for their appointment with him the next day, he immediately went to the place that they were staying, looked in the windows to find them, and even went inside of their rooms, Hmm. which is a little... Much, just for somebody who doesn't show up to your tour. Yeah. He also led the search teams for the women, and he was also the person who located most of their remains. Their remains were found within a radius of a few miles of a ranch that he owned, and the final nighttime photos taken between 1am and 4am were in a location where if they had proceeded down a hill, the next thing they would have encountered is his ranch. If you look at online reviews of this tour guide, most of them are positive, but several negative ones are from women who had hired him alone, who mentioned that he was really pushy, really flirty, he was touching them inappropriately, and one review stated that he was carrying a machete with him on the hike and made a joke about cutting off her legs. (sighs) Panamanian News even said that if there were a crime involved, he would be the top suspect. One of the local hostels in Boquette now refuses to book tours with this guide because of his, quote, impertinent habits with women tourists. Now, I do want to say this tour guide has gotten a lot of really negative attention and a lot of allegations. And he, by all accounts, has been, like, harassed for years. Mm Mm-hmm. I bet. He states... I have never been through something like this, the allegations. Even my wife received hate messages. And shortly after she passed away, he says he wants nothing more to do with the investigation and the accusations. He says, quote, I still have contact with the girl's parents and I don't want to make them sad. I only wanted to help. I have never seen the girls. Hmm. So I personally don't think he killed them. And due to his expertise in the area and his volunteering in the search, like, he's the one who knows the area the best in the area, so he's an expert in the area, and when people go missing, a lot of them often volunteer to find people to go searching for them. And so what is most likely is that he was just a really easy target for people who wanted to hold on to the foul play theory. Yeah, But- Going back to the theory of them having died as a result of an accident, many point out that the scenario of somebody kidnapping them, killing them, deleting one photo off the camera, but then putting it back in their bag with the rest of their belongings in perfect condition seems really implausible. Mm -hmm. So again, I said many point to the fact that the jungle is a very dangerous place and that there are parasites in the water that could have caused the women to have uh, dysentery. Mm. There are many toxic plants and fruits There are venomous animals and insects and starvation. All of these are plausible causes of death for these women who were pretty inexperienced hikers, although Lisanne did mountaineering. So that's odd. Mm -hmm. So while both the Panamanian and Dutch authorities have officially ruled their deaths an accident, the inconsistencies in the evidence have kept their story like a fascinating one that occupies a lot of discussion in true crime communities. And these theories, inflamed by a few other murders that were deemed officially unrelated, but did involve tourists in the area and may have been the work of either a serial killer or the cartel, there is still limited evidence that connects the disappearance of Lissanne and Chris Kremers to those other incidents. Okay. I do think, also, it's important to note that part of the reason that this story captures everyone's attention is because it's two young, pretty white women who went missing, and there are so many missing and murdered women and people of color that never get this level of attention, including many members of the Nagobe tribe— die yearly as a result of these like monkey bridges and it happens sort of so frequently and they're not really maybe treated as respectfully by local authorities that their deaths really go unremarked. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I bet. So that is the disappearance of Lisanne Froon and Chris Kremers. And I just don't know what to think about it, but it keeps my brain up at night sometimes thinking about this because there are so many unexplainable inconsistencies.
1: Yeah, I only know this from YouTube lists, like oh, unexplained okay. um, last photos people took or unexplained yeah. photographs. So I only know, like, I've only heard this story in like five minute chunks. So I really was mm. curious to hear more about this. Wow. So strange, right? Yeah, well, great what job. Do you, what I, do you
0: think? What do you think happened? I
1: think there was foul play, honestly. Do you? you? Okay. I do. I don't know if it was meant to be murder or if it was meant to be, like, theft, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if maybe they wandered off into an area they weren't supposed to, and like, for a photo opportunity, probably, probably nothing nefarious, but it doesn't sound like they're very inexperienced hikers. It doesn't sound like, based on what they had in the bag, that they weren't prepared for things to happen. Yeah, so I just don't think it it's likely. And like you said, there are it's one way in, one way out. People probably get lost all the time. People break rules all the time. I'm sure people climb over, venture into yeah. areas and get found. So I don't know, maybe they came across people who saw two white girls like ditzily taking photos and having fun and thought these are easy targets. Um, and I think that their bodies were probably taken they were probably taken somewhere killed hopefully you know uh, not tortured or anything like that and I think that their bones are scattered probably all over the place all over the place Mm. unfortunately
0: yeah yeah I
2: don't know
1: what do you think you're the one you read all the stuff what do you think now I know
0: I read so many things um god I just don't know like there's I'm sure that there are explanations for the inconsistencies that I raised but It's such a long list of inconsistencies that my brain can't help but think that there must have been some kind of foul play because even though it's the simplest explanation that they got lost, injured themselves, died in the jungle, and people do that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that happens to people, and it's the simplest explanation, and the simplest explanation is usually the right one, but the fact that there are so many weird circumstances and inconsistencies makes me think that that there was some kind of foul play and one thing i i don't know that i mentioned is one of the theories about those 90 photos is that the women like heard someone or something coming toward them and they were trying to get a photo of it
1: that i could see too that could that i could see maybe they were trying to scare someone off maybe they thought there was an animal or something following them even and they thought the flash from the camera might scare them off right could be so that makes sense
0: Listeners, I would love to hear what you think about this case, because if you have explanations for some of those weird inconsistencies, I would love to hear them. But yeah, this this case has been officially closed. But of course, Chris Kremers and Lisanne Friend's parents still don't really feel like they have closure. an answer yeah. and closure to it. So very tragic story, but one that really just sticks with me because of all the weird things associated with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. Well,
1: we. what would you rate the episode for watchability? I thought,
0: I'm going to give it a C- for watchability. I didn't think it was great. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the whole badgering him in interrogation scene was, I always get annoyed at those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like it went on a long time. And he was not an interesting character either. He wasn't. He was pretty boring, so I am going to give it a C minus. What about you?
1: I give it a C plus. I agree. Uh, the main issue I had was the badgering scene too, but I liked that it made it the evidence inadmissible, even though mm. we knew the guy was the bad guy, and that was yeah. a shame. I am glad it was like okay, well, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just do yeah. whatever you want to get the answer just because you know it's there. B. Yeah. E- e-
0: no. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so and it's obviously awesome. it's not connected to the crime I covered. Covered so uh, how it dealt with the topics is not super relevant. Yeah, not applicable, I would say. Oh, well, I don't think it really had any
1: big topics in the episode that it yeah. didn't like take care of. Probably just like yeah. you know, you could say coercion in the in the right, 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 but right. But I feel like that was addressed.
0: I agree. Yeah. So. Well. Isn't that case so strange?
1: Yeah, I literally, the only thing I know about it is from those lists that I'm always like looking at when I'm like, hi, or trying to find something to
0: watch (laughs) in the background while I play
1: video games.
0: (laughs) I think the first time I heard this story was probably on My Favorite Murder. And I think it was during the period of time when Miles was up in the Bay Area taking care of his mom. Mm -hmm. And so I was like home alone. And I distinctly remember it being like at night I was, like, sitting alone in my living room listening to it, probably playing a video game, and just being, like, so creeped out by this idea of, like, being alone in the jungle. Oh, my God. Alone in the jungle. Naked and afraid. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, all those shows, like, Survivor and things like that, I watch them and I'm like, I would die. I
1: would like to think I could be resourceful because I'm a resourceful kind of person, but that's a different level.
0: Yeah, and the instinct for self-preservation is very high. So I say that I would probably die, but I would probably keep fighting until the end.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I have friends that are very outdoorsy. They camp a lot, and they, they love being outside, and they've traveled abroad and been to other countries. They're bilingual and all that. And they went to Peru and spent mm-hmm. time in the rainforest there. I think it Ooh. was for their honeymoon. It okay. was like part of their honeymoon trip. And it was like two or three days, or two days or three days. And I think there was a guide at the beginning of it, but you're basically on your own. And they had a they they were fine, and they experienced, had a good experience. But they had a hard time for a few days, even just like simple things like yeah, you know, going to the bathroom or like going to sleep, finding a place to sit, avoiding bugs and unusual (laughs) plants and animals. Like imagine, like I can't even think about myself. I don't even like to go like too far out into a wooded area. No. <laughs> if I'm not like
0: comfortable and if I'm alone. I mean, I just like hear about one person every like 20 years getting attacked by a mountain lion up in our like hiking trails and I'm like, "Oof, I don't know, that could happen to me." <laughs> I experienced a stray cat in my neighborhood and I'm like, "Get out of here." <laughs> oh, anyway. Well, by the way, did you know that our podcast is free? We have new episodes every single week, so you should subscribe because, again, it's free. And it also costs nothing to write a review, and it really helps us out. Exactly. And most people try a podcast, honestly,
1: because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying our show, tell a friend. Tell them, check out the review I just left on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Exactly. We love connecting with our listeners, so please feel free to send an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. Again, I would really like to hear what people think about the Lisanne and Chris Kremers case. I don't know why I keep using Chris's first and last name and only Lisanne. Lisanne Froon and Chris Kremers. Some names are like that, you know? They, they yeah, need the yeah. last name. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And don't forget to check out our website,
1: Rippedheadlinespod.com. You'll find links to our relatively new Patreon, which has some great perks like we mentioned earlier, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. You can also find our awesome merch store on there.
0: Speaking of Patreon, we want to give a shout out to our newest member of the These Are Their Stories tier, Ryan Struck. Yay! And thank Yay. you, thank you, Ryan. This is me clapping. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get facts and the fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.